Well, good morning. Happy New Year, everybody. Everybody a little bit groggy. Who stayed up and watched the ball drop? Although I guess, what is that, at 9 p.m.? Or <laughs> I didn't stay up. Uh, I learned this year, I don't know how we can go all these years without knowing these things. Maybe you knew it, but they have to add a leap second every now and then to the calendar so that the last minute of the year actually has 61 seconds. The Atomic Clock Commission and the naval group that oversees time because because of the moon and all that stuff, we get out of sync with the solar calendar apparently. So 2016 was one of those years where they had to add an extra second at the end of the year. They call it a leap second. I was reading about it on National Geographic instead of staying up to watch the ball drop. So. But these here are days on the calendar, January, particularly the first day or two, where many people are looking forward, hopefully, towards some goal, right? Uh, some of you are looking for a way or two to improve some aspect of your lives as a culture, We take time to think and reflect on the past year and often make resolutions for the new one. It's just part of our culture. Uh, And the reason is because there's a desire for growth and for victory in life. We want to find satisfaction and fulfillment. That quest for meaning and purpose, it's common to everyone, right? There's, I don't think anybody who thinks day in and day out, I don't want to grow, I don't want to be fulfilled, I don't want to be satisfied, I don't want to have meaning in life. And it's the question that every person and every philosophy is trying to answer. Uh, what is the secret to satisfaction? A few years ago, ago, a movie came out which was based on an autobiographical memoir titled Eat, Pray, Love. It was a bit of a cultural phenomenon, which is a sad commentary on our culture, but the theme is given in the subtitle. I didn't read the book or see the movie, so, uh, but I read about it. And here, here's a theme. It was given in the subtitle of the book. It says, one woman's search for everything across Italy, India, and Indonesia. And it tells the story of this woman named Elizabeth Gilbert, a real lady. She was living as a successful writer. She had a husband, but She felt unfulfilled and unhappy, and so she decided she needed to divorce her husband and tried out another relationship. That relationship didn't take either. So she decided she'd have to travel the world to find meaning. And so she went to Italy to eat a bunch of food. She went to India to pray in a bunch of pagan temples. And in Indonesia, she fell in love with a South American businessman. And I'm sure that once you uh, close the back cover of the book or once those final credits started rolling at the end of the movie, I'm guessing you were left with the impression that they all lived happily ever after. Well, not quite, unfortunately, for them. Miss Gilbert wrote another book in 2010, four years after Eat, Pray, Love. It was titled Committed, A Skeptic Makes Peace with Marriage. And the purpose of that book was for her to convince herself and tackle her fears of marriage so she could finally come to terms with the idea of committing to this man, marry the new love of her life that she had met in Eat, Pray, Love, in order that he be allowed access to the United States and not be deported. Okay, we're past all the bumps in the road, right? Sadly, not quite. Now, in the book, Committed, she says things like this. She says, real, sane, mature love, the kind that pays the mortgage year after year, picks up the kids after school, is not based on infatuation, but on affection and respect. And this book was a New York Times number one bestseller as people went to Miss Gilbert to discover some sort of meeting or discover some sort of answer to the same quest that they were on. But unfortunately, even after all of this, 
Ms. Gilbert still has not found the meeting and the satisfaction she spent so long searching for. She, in in fact, announced a few months ago on her blog that she's divorcing the man she met at the end of Eat, Pray, Love, and she's now a lesbian with a new love of her life. And this is the story. I mean, it's magnified because she's a person that's in the news and has had books published and purchased and had a movie written about her work and those sorts of things. But this is the story of a person that many people in our culture are looking toward in order to find a way to fulfillment, a way to satisfaction. And how sad that she doesn't know the one who loves her most of all. As Christians, we know that, hey, the answer is actually right behind you, is right in the midst of you, right in front of you, if you would turn and face the one who gave all that he might love you. And so the question is, how does a person find satisfaction in life? That's the question, that happiness. And when I say happiness, I'm I'm talking about the kind of lasting purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction that our hearts as human beings truly long for. Not those temporal things, not those fleeting pleasures, but something that lasts, something eternal. You know, our culture tells us to cut and run. When we're, whenever we're looking for happiness or whenever we're looking for some sort of filling, the culture around us tells us cut and run. Uh, go somewhere new to find that elusive happiness. That's the message. A new place, a new race, a new face. And when people pursue those things... Their end is like Elizabeth Gilbert's. No lasting satisfaction, but plenty of broken relationships, a broken life that as she continues to pour more into herself, it just leaks immediately out. And so she gets on a plane or she gets into a new relationship or she tries some new practice. And yet year after year, work after work, we see that she is not more full as she should be according to all the effort that she's gone through, but in fact, she is more empty. But you know, sometimes Christians, we swing the other way in this discussion, and and we start thinking that if we even think about the idea of being happy, being fulfilled in life, we've somehow become less godly. Pastor and author Stephen Lawson points out that the desire for happiness is not illegitimate at all. God cares very much, in fact, about our true happiness, our true satisfaction, the true fulfillment of even this temporal life. Now, throughout the Psalms, throughout the wisdom literature of the Bible, even in the Sermon on the Mount, what do we hear? We hear God speaking to man over and over again about how we can, in this life, discover an incredibly eternal, abundant, spiritual life in our daily experience. And we've already heard our text this morning. It was read during the worship set. It was Psalm 128. And the whole theme of this song is how to be blessed. And that's a word that the Psalms use quite a bit. And many of you know that in the Bible, the word blessed, there's a few words that are translated blessed. But here the word can mean, oh, how happy is often how it is translated in dictionaries and those sorts of things. It even means to be envied. The person who is so happy and to be envied. And four times in this song, we're told by the Holy Spirit, okay, this is how you enjoy the blessed, oh, how happy, enviable life, a life that is heavenly, a life that is filled with eternal satisfaction. And it's a life that God wants for us, full of deep happiness. It's not defined by the world's terms. It's not defined by material possessions or material pleasures and the sort of things that we're conditioned so strongly to think, well, this is what happiness is. Your temporal possessions or your temporal pleasures, that's what happiness is. The Bible comes along and says, no, 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 that's not it at all. 
It redefines the term happiness, or it properly defines the term happiness, and explains to us that it is a life that is full of the eternal fulfillment from heaven by the power of God. It is a deep spiritual abundance available only through Jesus Christ. Allow me to read this wonderful song again to us. It says, a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, this song is one of the songs of ascents. Those are a cluster of 15 songs that would be sung by pilgrims who took the annual trips to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. Now, this particular song is sort of in two parts. Verses one through four, we have an affirmation of the fact that God wants to produce incredible satisfaction out of your regular and home life, right? It's an affirmation as the Lord explains how he wants to work in our regular lives. And then in verses five and six, we have a benediction, pronouncing yet more blessing on the people of God. And so we wanna look here first at the affirmation. It begins in verse one, and it says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And then very similarly, drop to verse four, it says, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And so I would say here that under the affirmation section, we have our first point, And we see here how to access the abundant life. In verses one and four, we have these two matching bookends that are standing as access to what God is talking about. God says, you wanna be truly happy? Okay, here is the realm where true happiness is found. And we see here that the fear of the Lord is the gateway to the happiness that the Bible is talking about, that fulfillment, that eternal satisfaction. It stands as the entrance and the exit of this section. Now we note there in verse one, the fearing and the walking. It says, those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. And we understand that the fear of God is mental and it is actual. It concerns not only the heart and the head and the hopes, it does, but also the hands and the habits and the hustle of life. All of those things are combined in the fear of the Lord. It is mental, it is actual. It is thought and it is action. And so we realize from reading the Bible that following after God is not just a mental acceptance of certain ideas or philosophy. Discipleship isn't just understanding ideas, but it is a way of life that is practiced. It is a way of life that we carry out as individuals as we journey with God in the directions that he points us in, right? Using his standards and his methods, his values, his conduct, And when it says that we walk in his ways, that's what God is talking about. That we pair our understanding of doctrine with our action in our regular lives. And so fearing God means that I'm fully oriented toward God in my life. I'm not trying to compartmentalize him or separate him or relegate him to some area of my life, but that he becomes the whole of my orientation in life that I'm walking with God, that I'm worshiping God, that I'm wondering at the glory of God, that I weigh out my steps to be sure that I am in harmony with God. And when we live in this manner, 
The Bible declares that we are on the happy road that leads to true fulfillment and lasting heavenly happiness. And so very simple that the Lord says, hey, just walk with me, follow after me. And you guess what? You're already on the road that leads to the satisfaction that your heart so desperately craves. The Lord has made a way for us. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the way. He's the way that leads to what? To disappointment? No, he says, I'm the way that leads to abundant life, life more abundantly. He says, I'm always faithful. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to disappoint you. I'm never going to let you down. I'm never going to fail uh, ultimately in life. And when we fear God and when we walk with God, we find that we are already on that road that leads to where we want to go. And you know, this opening verse here would have been a sweet reminder for those who had traveled far to Jerusalem for the feast that they were attending. If you were one of these pilgrims, there were prescribed feasts that the Jewish men had to go to each year. And uh, maybe you lived far away, but you would have traveled to Jerusalem, uh, probably a great distance and probably on foot. You would have taken this long walk to Jerusalem. And they're singing these different songs. They start in Psalm 120 and they continue through and there's these different themes and different ideas and different progressions, these songs of ascent as they make the trip from home up Jerusalem's hill, finally into the temple. But here, you're doing all this walking, you're going on this journey, you're headed down to partake in this ritual and this feast and you get to Psalm 128, what we call Psalm 128. And you find yourself singing about walking with God. And you hear God telling you through this song that your faith is not just about a ritual. It's not just about, hey, you have to check this pilgrimage off of the list of your life. Otherwise, I'm going to be upset with you. You have to do this. Otherwise, I'm angry. Not at all. Instead, you're, you're singing this song about the personal walk with God and that how he continues to be with you and that he desires to bring you fullness and satisfaction, not just through some ritual, but through an ongoing progressive relationship with him. It's not just a set of motions that they need to step through, but they sing here that it's a way of life that leads to true meaning, true satisfaction. And in this opening line, they're singing the reality that God is not hidden or restricted to some temple in Jerusalem, but you could walk with him in whatever far country you came from. The Lord who was with you as you walked to Jerusalem was going to be with you as you walked away from Jerusalem and went back home. And he was going to walk with you as you went around your daily life, whether you lived near or far from the temple. The principle is so much more true for us as New Testament Christians. You know, we're not called or commanded to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year. And what a privilege to serve a God who doesn't retreat to the other side of the world, but that he comes to us to dwell in us and to make us his temple. You know, Deuteronomy 33 says that our God is the God who rides across the heavens to help you, to help me to come to the aid of his people and to be in the presence of his people. That's our God. You see, in the world and in uh, these other philosophies, there's this idea that the God who's out there or the power that is out there has retreated from us. And if you climb a high enough mountain or if you pray in enough temples or if you do enough things, then maybe, maybe, maybe he would merit a meeting with you. Or maybe if you perform certain rituals in a certain way, maybe then he would be willing to answer a question or two from you. It's the famous sort of like Bugs Bunny picture that at the top of the Himalayas, there's the 
there's this weird shrine or this weird temple. You get up there and they say, you can only ask one question. You can only ask three questions. And then it's comedic because the person always blows the three questions right away. I can only ask three questions. Question one. Yes. Really? Question two. Okay. Uh, you know, are there, is there any way to ask any more questions? No. Okay. See you later. And then they have to go back down the mountain and they've blown their chance. But that's the idea that human beings so often have about God, that he's retreated and that he's gone and that he doesn't really want to have anything to do with you. He doesn't want to infuse your life. He doesn't want to be involved with you. And then the Bible comes along and says, well, let me tell you who God really is. The only true God. It's a God who rides across the heavens to help you and to be with you. A God who makes you his temple now uh, on this side of the cross and the resurrection. A God who wants to walk with you as you walk with him. Now, verse two continues. And having walked through the gates of verse one, we see what the Lord is talking about, affirming what he wants to do in our regular lives. It says, when you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. So here in verse two, we have and see how all of our activities can be touched by the spiritual abundance of heaven. And so the image here is physical activity, physical labor being touched by God to bring spiritual blessing and fulfillment. And what we learn is that there's no task or endeavor that our Christianity should not infuse, that should not be included in our walk with the Lord. God wants to be in all of it. He wants to bring fruit from all of it. And if we have things in our lives that, you know, habits that we have or activities that we're a part of, and if we look at those and we think, well, I'm confident that God can't bring fruit out of that activity. He can't bring something uh, spiritual into my life or through my life out of this activity. Well, then, you know, perhaps those are weights that need to be cast aside as we run our race. In Hebrews, it talks about as we run our race, casting aside those things that weigh us down. And as we evaluate our lives, you know, it's the first Sunday of the year, it's New Year's. Most people at least have some thoughts of reflection and looking forward. And if we assess our lives and we look at the things that we're a part of, our habits and our activities, and we see, you know, some item or, or something and we think, well, God can't do anything with this activity because look at it, look what it is. Well, then maybe that's a weight that the Lord says, hey, why, why don't we cut that away? Why don't we trim that away so that we can run faster together? God wants to be involved even in our regular work, according to this verse, so that he can bring abundant satisfaction to all points of our lives. When it says, it shall be well with you, that word well means pleasing, valuable, generous, and festive. And so a person who walks in the fear of the Lord is described in the Bible not as dour or miserly or purposeless, but God, in fact, describes him here as a merry man of generous cheer, a festive man, a man who celebrates and is uh, bringing cheer wherever he is. And a person who can discover he heavenly satisfaction even in the hard labors of life. I mean, the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that life is very difficult and there's very hard work to be done, even in our modern uh, era that we find ourselves in. And yet the Lord says, yeah, but I can bring this kind of abundance from heaven into your life, even in difficult, difficult labor. Remember, we serve a God who can bring praise into prisons and peace into storms and joy from mourning. Our God is so powerful that he can accomplish an eternal work through our regular work in the office or on the line or in the field. You know, we look at men in the Bible, men and women, examples given to us that show what God can do in a life. Men like Nehemiah, men like Isaac, women like Abigail or Jael in the Old Testament. 
These were people who accomplished great things in the plan of heaven while going about their regular lives in the fear of God. They were just showing up to live their regular lives, to do their regular work, and and the Lord did incredible things through them and many more examples in the Bible. And as God does this, he doesn't take advantage of his people. He doesn't exploit us. It does, it's not that God looks at your life as if it's a strip mine and he's gonna go in there and take everything out for himself. Not at all. Instead, he says, I, actually, I fill my people. I fill your life with heavenly treasure. I fill your life with eternal meaning and purpose, one that you cannot give yourself. The things that we're looking for, we have to realize in our lives, those most meaningful things, there are things that we cannot give to ourselves. Only God can give lasting satisfaction and lasting purpose and heavenly meaning to a life. And the Lord says, and I'm excited to do that for you. I want to do that for you as you walk with me. He fills us, he gives us insight and contentment and passion in ways that the people around us will marvel at. You look at people like Nehemiah, people like Isaac, Abigail, Jael, pick whatever character you want uh, in this category in the Bible. And what about the people around them? They marvel at these people. They identify the work of God in their lives. They come to these people for answers. They, they invest, you know, authority in these people and And it's because the Lord is doing wonderful things in and through them. Look at verse three. It says, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. It's a beautiful verse. Verse one gives us the access in this affirmation. Verse two highlights our activities. And here the psalmist turns to the attending of the family. We're brought out of the office and into the home. And here the song uses lush, vibrant language to describe what God desires and can supply in our family relationships. And of course, we recognize and don't shy away from the fact that this is not a guarantee that every marriage uh, is going to be perfect. It's not a guarantee that every parent-child relationship is going to be perfect. Not at all. We'll come back to that in a moment. But here we see heaven's desire for the Christian family whose God is the Lord. The psalmist starts here with the wife. He says she's like a fruitful vine. You know, a grapevine is a plant that needs to needs support, right? It's lifted up off of the ground. It's put on a trestle or wrapped around a pole. And this imagery is used for a variety of reasons. But for this morning, here's what I want to say, mostly to our Christian husbands that are here. Men, your Christian wife has limitless potential for fruitfulness because of the power of God. But she must have support. You, you must support your wife. And that is our honor to accomplish as Christian husbands. And it's our duty. And so as a husband, if you find yourself thinking that you, you know, our wives aren't producing enough fruit in general or in some specific area, the answer is not to do what Elizabeth Gilbert did, right? Just keep cutting and running from each spouse and trying to think you're gonna find the perfect spouse the next door over. The vine is not greener in another man's house in this, uh, in this analogy here in Psalm 128. The answer is possibly that your wife needs more godly support in order to bear the fruit that he has created her to make, right? And so... Cultivate, protect, and refresh your wife. Because when a vine is properly supported and allowed to grow, then it bears many clusters of fruit. A vine on its own, you may look at it and you think, oh man, like 
this is, this is, a, this is a delicate thing. And, and, but when it's properly cultivated and taken care of and supported and, and watered and all of that, then it bears forth many clusters of fruit season after season. Now, wives, you're also responsible as children of God. It's not, just, it's not that your husband is responsible for your spirituality. He is there to bolster your faith and bolster your fruitfulness and to support uh, the work that want, God wants to do in your life just as you are there to support the work that God wants to do in his life as well. But you are responsible as children of God because you're designed to grow and bear fruit as you soak up the light and the water and live as the new creation you are. And so in our context this morning, our hearts shouldn't be set on escape, right? But that you and your husband, you and your wife be bringing forth fruit from the heart of the home as you work together and as you fulfill the purposes that God has designed and explained to us in his word. Now the psalmist moves next to the children. He says they're like olive plants all around your table. The plants here are newly sprouted buds. They have a long way to go, to be sure. And there's a lot of work to be done to train them and prepare them and get them to produce a crop. But once they do, they yield ongoing rich fruit. You know, olive trees live for centuries. I learned this week that there are some olive trees they have in the Middle East that are over 2,000 years old. It's trees that potentially Jesus Christ picked olives off of, still living and bearing fruit today. And so it's an image here of the kind of tree, the kind of plant that has a legacy of fruitfulness because some farmer... Uh, did the work and continues that work and other farmers keep doing the work and keep bringing forth fruit. And notice here that it says they are all around your table. And it means that the place that you go for sustenance, say as the man of the house, is, is who the psalmist is primarily speaking to. Husbands, the, the place you go for sustenance is also the place where you accomplish your most important work. Your, your wife is the vine in the heart of your house. Your kids are the plants all around the table. And so, men, home is not the place where we disengage and unplug. It's not the place where we go to retreat because we had significant work outside. You, you have significant work to do, and the Lord wants to bring wonderful abundance and satisfaction out of that hard labor that we saw in verse 2. But here we see all around the table, from the heart of the home, the most significant, important work being done there in the home. It's the place where the most meticulous and meaningful work is done. But as we fear God in the home, God says that our lives should be filled with ongoing fruitfulness that brings this heavenly happiness to our daily lives. James Montgomery Boyce notes that the symbols used in these analogies aren't the mundane staples of grain and wheat. It doesn't say your wife is like the wheat and your children are like the grain. Um, Those are sort of mundane staples that weren't particularly interesting in that era. Instead, the song uses vines and olives. These are symbols of rich abundance. These are luxury items. They're, they're wonderful, uh, wonderful, delectable things. They're products used not just for food, but they were used for merrymaking and for medicine and for worship and for light, for the anointing of kings, for sacrifices and offerings. They are crops that are costly and delightful. And so I think it's a beautiful revelation of the kind of portrait that God wants to paint with our lives. He wants to bring a rich abundance to the fruitfulness of our lives. And here in verses one through four, he affirms that it's his desire to accomplish these things and that he has the power to accomplish these things. And then in verses five and six, we see a benediction. 
It says, the Lord bless you out of Zion and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, before we discuss this further blessing, I do want to take a moment and acknowledge the fact that these incredible statements, like we read here, or often like we read in the Proverbs, they do not always ring true in our experience, right? I mean, we look at these and we think, really? I mean, how come I don't feel this all the time if this is how God is describing the Christian life and the Christian family? Um, as Christians, we sometimes go through intense suffering. We go through broken relationships. We sometimes lack that feeling of satisfaction that we thought Jesus promised to deliver. You know, for, for many of you, 2016 was a really brutal year for one reason or another, or maybe for many reasons. And so the question becomes for us this morning, okay, well, Lord, how do I sing this song? I, I want it to be true of my life. My heart desires these things. Well, so how do I sing this song and how do I experience what it seems you want me to experience? You know, we open up the scripture and we see God making himself involved in our lives, bringing the power of heaven to our lives, talking about life more abundantly, right? Rivers of water flowing in, rivers of water flowing out through us, bringing beauty from ashes, all of these wonderful high things. But what about those broken marriages? And what about those prodigal children? And what about those failed ventures? And, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to bring those questions to God as long as we're willing to trust him and praise him as we ask those questions. God's not afraid of us asking those questions. What God doesn't want is for us to stop trusting him. You look at the Psalms. Psalms are full of people asking hard questions, even complaining to God, but then they always bring praise with it and they, they come to the same conclusion. Lord, I'm going to trust you. I want this answer and I'm having this difficulty, but I trust you and I worship you because I know you are who you say you are. And so we shouldn't be afraid to bring these questions to God. In all honesty, there aren't very simple answers to why our experience does not always match up to the affirmations we see in, in Scripture. There, there just aren't always simple answers. There are a few factors, though, that can help us put the temporal life and the temporal struggles into perspective. First, we recognize that any isolated Scripture, like Psalm 128, does not stand apart from the rest of Scripture, Right? In our regular Bibles, there are more over 31,000 verses in the Bible. This morning, we have six out of those 31,000. And that's not to say that the six contradict any of the others. They don't. But we understand that the whole truth of God's revelation simply cannot be poured into each and every individual verse, right? That's why we need the entire word of God and that we're encouraged by the Lord to go and look into the volume of the book and discover more about his truth and his wisdom and who he is as we walk with the Lord. Second, we understand from the rest of the Bible that many of the promises of God are not entirely realized in our temporal lives. I mean, God does have power for your daily life. He does want you to feel contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment in your life today. He does want that. However, there is a coming future where the joy and the fulfillment and our glorification will be made full and complete to a degree we can't even fathom today. And the Bible, when it's talking about this wonderful process that the Lord uh, has put us on, is often including that future fulfillment. And third, we live in a reality where God has allowed human beings to exercise a free will to choose. Look, none of us are perfect, and none of us can force the world or the people around us to always choose God's way. And neither does God force anyone to choose his way. He wants everyone to choose his way, but he does not force them to choose 
his way. Instead, he allows human beings to make decisions, and those decisions have repercussions. And unfortunately, sometimes when someone near you makes a very terrible spiritual decision, the repercussion hits you and has an impact on you and your relationship with them and your progress with them and your feelings uh, for them and your life. And so even if you are walking in the fear of God, that does not mean that the Lord is going to overpower the free will of those around you so that they also will walk in the fear of God. But here's what we do know. We know from the Bible, God's heart and his intentions for his people. And we know the kind of potential he has in the life of an individual Christian and in the home of a Christian and in a Christian church. We know the rich generosity that he loves to shower on his people, that incredible grace, amazing grace that has been sung about for thousands of years. And this is what's on display in Psalm 128. The first part part talking about how this rich abundance works practically and then in the second part, another pronouncement of blessing on God's people. This text reveals a God whose arm is not short, whose promises are not lax. And even as we look in our lives and we think, but Lord, I am not seeing how this is going to be fulfilled or I feel like I am not realizing the things that you have affirmed in your word, we know and we know and we know that the Lord has not failed and he has not abandoned us and that he has all the power he has ever had and that it is his pleasure to pour out his grace and his love toward us. Now we should mark that it says there in verse five, all the days of your life. We learn here that God wants us to deeply enjoy on a spiritual level every stage of our lives as much as possible as we live them out for him. You know, this morning we have a group here. We find ourselves on different sections of life's calendar, but no matter what stage we're in, the Lord has spiritual fulfillment for us generally and specifically. And that's an exciting thing. It doesn't matter if you're young, doesn't matter if you're older, the Lord has uh, a program for you and he has power for your life. Never are we promised perfection in this life. There's hard work to do. Not every marriage will be smooth sailing. In fact, no marriage is going to be completely smooth sailing. Certainly raising children is not without struggles, be they infants or adults. But in this psalm, it is affirmed that the regular life, particularly the regular family life, is something that we can cherish and see infused by the power of God and spiritual fruitfulness. He wants us to see and experience heaven's goodness in earth's endurance. And when we live our lives out in the fear of God, the Bible explains that we gain access to a certain satisfaction that cannot be found anywhere else. Not in any earthly pilgrimage to India, not in any gluttonous feast in Italy, no sleazy fling with a stranger in Indonesia, right? These are all the wrong places to look for that fulfillment that we are seeking. God explains here that he pipes the most meaningful purpose and rewarding satisfaction right into your home. Your life is already plumbed for the thing that God, uh, the thing that your heart is longing for. And that is an amazing, amazing revelation. The thing that the people of the world who don't know Jesus Christ are literally traveling the world to discover. You have this, this poor lady, Elizabeth Gilbert, going all the way around the world and destroying this relationship and now this relationship and another relationship, changing everything about who she is and going on this huge quest, spending who knows how many dollars and all this time and all this effort. And in the meantime, the Lord comes along and says, I plumbed your life already for what you're looking for, but you won't accept the connection. 
You, you won't turn on the spout. You won't drink of the water that I came to give you. If you knew who it was who was offering you this gift, you would never thirst again. What an amazing, you know, modern example of the woman at the well, living this life, breaking all these relationships. And you know what? Elizabeth Gilbert is someone that our culture looks to for answers, who looks to for fulfillment. Who says, oh, okay, how do I find this happiness and that fulfillment, that thing that my heart is craving? Well, let me go ask this person because she wrote a book and she went on a quest and they're New York Times bestsellers is selling hundreds of thousands of these books and people are reading them hoping to find some sort of answer and some sort of way to slake their thirst. And the Lord says, I, I plumbed your life for it already something that's really going to satisfy you so that you don't have to thirst again. A wonderful, wonderful picture here of what the Lord has done and he affirms it. You know, we're at the beginning of a new year. We're all looking forward in one way or another. Our Lord's hope is that all of us will enjoy and cherish our godly lives throughout all our days. Back in verse one, there's that careful phrase, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. The heavenly happiness we're talking about here is not only for those ages 13 to 18 or for those with an AARP card. It's not restricted to a certain group or, or to a certain segment of life or anything like that. It's available to everyone, the Bible says. A free gift, a universal gift to those who will lay hold of it. And how do we lay hold of it? By fearing God and walking with him. By finding purpose in all our labor uh, by doing it as unto the Lord. And discovering our deepest, richest happiness and spirituality, not hiding in some monastery, not in the Taj Mahal, right around the kitchen table, right where the Lord has planted you in your regular life. The Lord has hidden great treasure there. Now, the world around you is going to keep trying to convince you that the way to happiness is to escape or to pretend, or to compromise. That's the message that you're gonna get in 2017 as the world pressures you and pressures you and pressures you. Just escape, just pretend, just compromise. It's gonna be packaged up in fancy, lofty-sounding language like when Elizabeth Gilbert said this in Eat, Pray, Love. She said, happiness is the consequence of personal effort. Sometimes you have to even travel around the world looking for it. You have to participate relentlessly in the manifestations of your own blessings. Wow. How's that working out for her? How's that working out for the people who think that these are where we find real fulfillment in life by, through self-gratification and through you know, um, selfishness and self-orientation? What a sad thing, the manifestations of your own blessings. We don't even understand our own hearts, but the world says, well, you can fill your own heart with that thing that you most deeply long for. And you can, you can have the, 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 the deepest relationship with other people, even though you can barely understand yourself. And then Psalm 128 comes along, revealing that God is for you. And he says, no, 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 you don't have to try to manifest your own blessings. I'm gonna come along and I'm gonna give you life more abundantly. And God wants us to discover the true meaning of life, true abundance in life. It can't be bought it's far too precious. We could never afford to purchase it, but it's freely given to those who will go in the way of the Lord. And so as we look to a new year, let's determine to orient ourselves toward God. Because when we do that, he says that he is able and willing to funnel in more and more of his wonderful spiritual blessings to our hearts, in our families, through our work, 
ultimately realized and fully enjoyed when we stand with him in glory. That's the road we're on. Let's pray.